please keep your place there in 1 Samuel 25. Is it true that redheads are feistier than blondes or brunettes? And if so, where do redheads get their fiery tempers? Is it a result of nurture or nature? Geneticists have mapped the human genome, and they found out so many things about why we are the way we are, both physically and psychologically. There is one gene receptor. It's simply described as MC1R.3, and that gene receptor is the gene receptor which determines the color of one's hair. And there are people, only 1% to 2%, by the way, of the human race, possesses red hair. And what we've discovered, not we, but the geneticists have discovered, is that in exploring that, that there's no indication that redheads' emotions are determined by genetics, as it relates to being redheaded, at least. But what they have discovered is that that same gene receptor, MC1R.3, is a receptor that does indicate physical pain associated with the people who are redheaded. For instance, redheads get more uncomfortable when it gets colder faster than we brunettes do. Now, I'm not brunette anymore, but believe it or not, I was at one time. In fact, brunettes begin to feel intense cold to the point of it being very painful at freezing, 32 degrees Fahrenheit, whereas redheads at 43 degrees Fahrenheit. Redheads need more anesthesia. It's a proven fact whenever they're undergoing some kind of procedure that requires their being put to sleep or localized with anesthesia. They require more. The jury's still out on whether redheads are by genetic makeup, more apt to feel emotional pain because they're redheads. One red has her own theory. She traces the emotional volatility of redheads to being teased and bullied from early childhood by peers because of their appearance, because they're different. Remember, only one out of a hundred or maybe two out of a hundred are redheaded, and therefore they're different. Don't we pick on people who are different than we, either in appearance or perhaps temperament. David was a redhead. The Bible tells us this. David had been picked on, bullied by his brothers. In 1 Samuel 17, when he was sent by their father to the three eldest brothers, he brought food to them. He was the bearer of gifts to them. And the oldest brother, Eliab, began to bully him. And said, what are you doing here, little brother? Why don't you go back and take care of the sheep? That's all you're qualified to do. He'd come to do them a favor, and they were bullying him. He was the youngest of eight brothers. It had been tough on him. And then he said, it's a very telling response. It's a question, really. What have I done now? Doesn't that sound like a little brother with seven older brothers? What have I done now? He'd been picked on. We come to this story today, and let me pause here just a moment. When I wrote that down in preparation for the message, I thought, really, it's more than a story. It is a story. Actually, the word history has story in it, doesn't it? It's his story. It's God's story. That's what history is. And this is a vital part of his story. Do you know until 1993, there was no hard evidence that a man by the name of David 
who was a king existed. No hard evidence. Archaeologists had dug all over Israel with no positive outcome. They were looking for other things except for proof that David lived. But we knew that David lived before then, didn't we? Because the Word of God tells us. And the Word of God is reliable beyond all other documents of antiquity. That begs for another teaching at another time. In 1993, a team of Israeli archaeologists in the north of Israel dug up at Tel Dan a piece of rock. It's called a stela. And on it, there was this inscription that the king of the Arameans defeated the king of Israel. Probably that, we don't know for sure, but probably that was Jehoram. And the king of the house of Judah, David. Do you remember what we read about the prophecy that Abigail made about David? That he would have an enduring house? Well, that was written in the 9th century B.C. on that stone. It was carved into that stone. You and I have an incredibly reliable document in the Word of God. It's unparalleled in its sufficiency for sure, for living. But it's unparalleled among all documents of antiquity in terms of its reliability, historical reliability. So let's look at the three main characters in this passage of Scripture and learn some lessons from the Lord through them. The first is Nabal. We look at, if you'll look at verses 2 and 3 now, there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and a 1,000 goats, and it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the man's name was Nabal, his wife's name was Abigail, and the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. This man, Nabal, was a rich man. It says so in this text. He was wealthy. And the word which is translated, depending on your translation, rich or wealthy, that word is a word which literally means heavy. It does not mean he was overweight necessarily. What it means is he had so much money, in effect, it weighted him down. He was a wealthy man. Never mind that he had 3,000 sheep. Never mind that he had 1,000 goats. Never mind that he had no telling how many servants. He had a boatload of money, too. He was a wealthy man, but he also was a worthless man. This is the term that is used of him twice. I don't know if you caught it as the passage was read. Twice he's described as a worthless man. And the word translated worthless is a word literally. This is what it means. Can you listen just a moment? It's three words in Hebrew. Man of Belial. Have you ever heard the name Belial or Belial? It's one of the names the Bible in the Old Testament uses for Satan. He was a man of the devil. Now what's interesting, it was something that I had never thought, I've read this no telling how many times. I just sort of skimmed over the part that described his descendants. He was a descendant of Caleb. He was a Calebite. Who was Caleb? Caleb was one of the two spies of the twelve who went into the promised land, brought back 
the same report the other ten who said, no, we shouldn't go in. Joshua and he teamed up and they said, we believe we can go in because God's given this land to us. We need to go for it. And quite frankly, he was more forthright with his declaration than Joshua was as far as what kind of dialogue we find in the Scriptures about that. But here we see he's a Calebite. He's a descendant of Caleb. Caleb was the representative of the tribe of Judah who went in to the promised land to spout out. Which tribe was David from? The tribe of Judah. They were kin folks. They were cousins. They may never, probably haven't ever met to this point. But Nabal knew of David, probably. It would be hard not to know of him if you had lived in this era because of the great feats that God had accomplished through this dear young man still, still in his 20s when this takes place. But he was a worthless man. I was thinking, even as we were worshiping through song, it came to my mind, there's another verse in 1 Samuel 2.12. And it describes two men as being worthless. I thought, I wonder if the word worthless there translates the same Hebrew phrase that we have here about Naboth. Does it describe him as being, these two men, as being men of the devil too? And I turn and lo and behold, the same thing. And you know what that text says? It's about the sons of the high priest, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. This is what it says. They were worthless men because they did not know the Lord. Do you know what qualifies a person to be a person of worth? If she or he knows the Lord. And the only way we know the Lord is for the Lord to reveal Himself to us. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. So, this man Nabal was a worthless man. Why? He did not know the Lord. Do you know what David writes about people who don't know the Lord? In Psalm 14, 1, says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. He, his name means fool. He was a fool. He was not stupid. When the Bible talks about people being fools, in this verse, for instance, in Psalm 14.1, it's not talking about being intellectually deprived. It's talking about being a moral fool is really the word that's used there. And Nabal was such a one. He was a fool. We see him drinking himself drunk into a stupor. Now, I'm going to speculate a little bit, but I'm going to do it with a certain degree of legitimacy here. This is what I believe. Why would a man get drunk? Period. What would possess a person to go there? Especially a man who had all the world had to offer. He had a beautiful wife. He had a huge spread. He had more money than he would be able to spend in several lifetimes. But he gets drunk. What would do that. It's because he couldn't live with himself. Because he knew internally there was a big, vast gulf that separated him from God. He had a void in his life. So we see Nabal. He was a man who had everything the world could offer, but he was an empty man. Let's look at Abigail. Abigail was a wise woman. This is the thing that really draws me to Abigail. I would love 
I think I will be able to maybe have some interaction with her in heaven. Ladies, if you want a role model, look at Abigail. Abigail was a wise woman. If you'll hold your place here and go to James chapter 3, we're going to look at the difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. In James chapter 3, verse 13, who is there to harm you if you possess, if you prove, I'm in 1 Peter, excuse me. I'm a little ahead of the game here. 1 Peter is not the book. James 3.13, who among you is wise and understanding? Let me stop here just a moment. When the Bible talks about her being intelligent, that's not a good interpretation. It literally means a person of understanding. She was a wise woman. She undoubtedly was above average in intelligence, but she was wise. She knew how to apply the truth. She was a woman of understanding. Let her show by her good behavior, her deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. Was she a gentle woman? Absolutely she was. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. That's Nabal, her husband. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it is earthly, natural, demonic, son of Belial, foolish. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure. This woman was a pure-hearted woman. Then peaceable. She was a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. She was gentle, as we've seen, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. This is a picture of wisdom when we look. At Abigail, she was this kind of person. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. She prevented, or a better way of saying it, she was used by God to prevent David from becoming a murderer. That's for sure. And it would have undermined his taking over the throne. There was enough tension, if you know the story, When he became king, it took him seven and a half years to really consolidate the kingdom. He reigned for forty and a half years total, but it took him seven and a half years. He never was able to go to Jerusalem to establish his kingdom there. There had to be a lot of diplomacy and some skirmishing going on. It would have been probably impossible had he murdered Nabal. He would have had that blemish on his character. But Abigail is a wise woman. She actually is submissive, isn't she, in the way she relates to David? I just did an informal search for two words in this passage which we read together from 1 Samuel chapter 25. Twelve times she describes herself as a maidservant, a maidservant. That's an indentured servant. That's more than an indentured servant. That is a bond servant. That's someone who belongs to someone else. And she was saying to The man whom she knew undoubtedly was going to be king. She had respect for him and she humbled herself and she submitted herself to his authority. She even sort of took up for Nabal, didn't she, in a way. She said to David, David, it was my fault. I'm the one to blame that you didn't get the food. Now I'm bringing the food to you, David, and to your men. 200 loaves of bread, 100 cakes of figs and raisins. I'm bringing this stuff to you now. 
she humbled herself. And she used the phrase, my Lord, six times in reference to David. She was wise with her words. The Bible says in Proverbs 15:1, it says, A gentle answer turns away wrath. Do you ever wrestle with anger like David did? David was not always that way. I wish we had time to look at chapter 24. He had a great opportunity to kill his chief enemy, King Saul, twice in chapter 24. And then later in chapter 26, he had him dead to rights. And he had every reason to kill him from a personal point of view because Saul had put out a death warrant for him. And Saul himself had picked up a spear on three separate occasions and thrown it at David to try to strike him down dead, pin him to the wall. But he missed by the grace and sovereignty of God. He missed. But this man, David, had an advocate in the form of this dear lady, Abigail. And Abigail was a beautiful woman. That didn't hurt anything. But the most important part of her was she was a wise woman. Young men, if you're not married, listen carefully. Ask God to give you an Abigail for a wife. A wise woman. A woman who is submitted to the Lord and loves the Lord more than she will love you, which will qualify her to be the kind of wife God created her to be for you. Ask God for an Abigail. Let's look at David. David was angry. We see this. Look at verses 21 and 22. Verses 21 and 22. This is what we hear David say. Surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness. He hadn't allowed his men to insult the people. And he had gotten like a perimeter of his men. 600 men to keep rustlers out. He had not had any kind of conversation with Nabal. He just did it because he was who he was. He was a man after God's heart, and he cared about the people in that area. And what we need to see here is that there's something that's not in the text, but historians of this era in this area of land People like David and his men who voluntarily protected flocks at the shearing time when the wool was sheared and it was taken to market and there was money received. It was a very festive time. But also, this is what we know, that there was a sort of tipping that took place. It was sort of an unwritten law that these ones like David and his men would be tipped. It was in food usually. And that's what this whole thing was about. That's what angered David. Hey, we have taken care of you. You wouldn't even have any wool to take to market because someone would have come and taken all your livestock away were it not for us. David was a man who was angry. He was not always angry in chapter 24. As I mentioned, he had a chance to do his nemesis saw in, and he didn't do it. But what we know is David was angry, but by the grace of God, his anger was detained. He was a teachable man, too. 
he took what Abigail said, and this would not be easy for a man in any era, but especially in David's era, especially in David's position, to take advice from an unknown lady. But he did. He had the humility to do that. He was teachable in that situation. Now let's consider lessons learned. There are three lessons to learn from this. At least, there are many more lessons. I hope you will take time when you go home this afternoon and consider other lessons which you can gain from this passage in this story. Here's the first lesson. Wealth does not determine your worth and is a poor substitute for God. Let's read 1 Timothy 6, 6 6-10. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Nabal is case in point. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Not money, but the love of money. Money is a neutral object. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I repeat, your worth is not based on how much you own, how much money you have, what you drive, where you live, or what you wear. It's based on, do you know God? That's where your your worth lies. And then Jesus says in Matthew 6.24, let's read this together aloud. Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Wealth is a poor substitute for the one true God. Here's the second lesson we learned. The first was really from Nabal. The second is from Abigail. Wisdom is to be preferred over wealth. Let's look at these verses Proverbs 4, 7. Let's read this together. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom, and with all your acquiring, get understanding. Look, we ought to sell everything we have to get wisdom if we have to. Everything. Get everything out of the way so that you can get wisdom. Do you know who our wisdom is? Jesus Christ, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. He is, among other things, our wisdom. We are to be men and women who seek to be wise, and we have to prefer the acquisition of wisdom over wealth. Look at verse 16, 16 of Proverbs. Let's read this. How much better it is to get wisdom than gold, and to get understanding is to be chosen above silver. So, the second lesson is, wisdom is to be preferred over wealth. Learn that lesson well, young person. It will make a huge difference in the contentment in your life. What does the Scripture say? Godliness with contentment is great gain. Focusing on the Lord. Now, we have to have money to live. God entrusts some of us with more than others. I don't understand that. But I'm at peace with what He gives me. Be content with what you have, is what the writer of Hebrews says, because God is with you. With God having God, We don't need anything else. He's our provider, our protector, and any number of other things. Here's the last point. Last lesson point. Here it is. Leave vengeance to God. And let's read 1 Samuel 17, 46, 47. David had forgotten this, at least for the moment, and we are apt to do it too. 
Read it with me. This day, he's talking to Goliath. He's about to face off with him. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and He will give it into our hands. That's David's testimony. But he forgot it, didn't he? He took matters, or at least he was on the verge of taking matters into his own hands. He was going to get his pound of flesh from Nabal. Why in the world would you take 400 men to face off with one drunk? I don't know. But he was so angry. He said, strap on your swords, men. I'm strapping mine on, and we're going to take that dude down. But this dear lady intervened. Thank God. I've said it twice probably, but thank God for Abigail. And she intervened. We'll finish by reading Romans 12, 17 through 21. Let's read this aloud. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Let me just stop. Do you have it in your heart to pay back evil to somebody? And you're a Christian. And just eats away at you what someone's done to you? Well, this is for us who have that problem. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Do you get it? How difficult is that to understand? Do you get it? It's clear, isn't it? Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's awesome, isn't it? To think that we who know Jesus have the Prince of Peace living in us and the same Spirit who indwelled David and Abigail indwells us and empowers us to prioritize Christ first in our lives and seek wisdom and leave vengeance to God. Let's pray. Father, we ask Your forgiveness for seeking lesser gods. Father, we ask Your forgiveness for not demonstrating godly wisdom opting for the world's form of wisdom, for our selfish ambition. And lastly, Lord, we ask forgiveness for being vengeful in our hearts and maybe in our words and in our actions. Forgive us, Lord. Do a work in us. Make us a church that is a body of believers who seeks to follow You fully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.